When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. No brackish water aquarium is complete without brackish water fishes. And traditionally, that's been a bit of a challenge in terms of finding some different fishes than we previously associated with brackish aquariums. I think this is going to continue to be a bit of a challenge for a while because some of the fishes that we want are still kind of elusive in the hobby. It's sad, but it's true, and, and once more and more demand exists for unusual brackish water fishes, importers will start bringing in more, breeders will start producing more. In the meantime, we have to be a little bit, little bit resourceful. And, you know, new brackish water fishes are something that excites us, but we can still focus on some of the cool fishes from these habitats, which are currently available to us and have been for some time. And there are a few. They can be hard to find, of course, and I think the biggest challenge facing those of us who love brackish water aquariums is trying to separate aquarium fact from scientific fact. This is pretty fun to do, actually, at least for geeks like me. However, one of the things I found is that you need to go beyond what the hobby articles say and look into the actual information from scientific sources about the types of habitats our targeted fishes actually come from. There's still a surprisingly large amount of misinformation out there concerning fishes long thought to be brackish when the reality is that they're often found predominantly in non-brackish habitats with only isolated populations of fishes being brackish fishes. Like many hobbyists who play with brackish water tanks, I found over the years that it's mighty tricky to source the genuine brackish water fishes. Through lots of follow-up and luck, I've managed to secure fishes from these types of habitats from time to time, which is, of course, paramount if you're trying to recreate one of these habitats in your aquarium. As most of you know, I'm no huge cichlid fanatic, but there are some which have found their way into my heart over the decades. One of these is a genuine hobby legend, which just happens to be one of my fave all-time fishes, the venerable orange chromite. That's Pseudotropolis maculatus, a fish with a very weird popular name. Now, despite being a cichlid, and I say that with a sort of a smile, the orange chromite is relatively, uh, it's a relatively easygoing fish that tops out at about eh, four inches or so in size, maybe three and a half to four inches, which is a huge plus in my book. I'm not a big fan of big fishes. And being one of the very few species of fishes which comes from India, it's even more interesting. In fact, just so you know, there's only three species which are native to India. Uh, Etropolis suratensis, this so-called green chromide, Pseudotropolis maculatus, which is our, our buddy the orange chromide, and the cool and really hard to find Etropolis canarensis, which is one that you almost never see. And uh, hopefully we will see more of them. Oh, and the name, the name orange chromide, it drives me crazy. I was trying to figure out what the hell that means. So I looked it up all over the place. Now the official Merriam-Webster origin of the name is, and I'll read you the quote here, quote, chromide ultimately from greek chromis a sea fish and i'm like a sea fish what the fuck <laughs> yeah not really satisfying and it begged me to do a little bit more digging of course now 
Of course, that means that uh, I have to try to find out more in some scientific journals. Now, interestingly enough, the fish was originally described by the ichthyologist Bloch in 1795 as Chaetodon maculatus. And if that genus found some familiar, sounds familiar to us saltwater you know, aquarium geeks, it should. That's the same genus in which many marine butterfly fishes are found. And I suppose the fish seems to bear at least a very superficial resemblance to a marine butterfly fish at first glance. And of course, the ultra speculative geek in me goes, hmm, if it looks like a butterfly fish and it's a freshwater or brackish water fish, it, then it must have been described from a brackish water habitat originally or something that's at least close to the ocean. So the ichthyologist made that association. Now, of course, they use things other than just where the fish is found to do that. But Back in 1795, I don't think they were doing DNA analysis, so it might have just been something as simple as, hey, it looks like a saltwater fish. Sorry, Mr. Block, I hope I'm not insulting your uh, your skills. But anyway, so the chromide part of the popular name refers to its appearance as a sea fish or chromis. And to add a final note of confusion to this taxonomic and popular name scramble, Chromis is a popular genus of really colorful marine damselfishes, the blue chromis, the blue devil, the you know, all those all those fishes that we in the reef trade know. So the popular name of this fish is based on it being confusingly similar in appearance to a marine fish. Oh, that's weird, right? Yeah, that's why common names are often fraught with problems. And for the ultimate inaccuracy, we should at least have a working familiarity with the Latin species names of our fishes. Oh, and this little fish has been bounced around a few genera over the years, from Chiatodon to Atropolis, and finally to this Pseudotropolis. So, go figure. Actually, I think it's the only fish in its genus. I could be wrong. Okay, whatever you call it, it's a pretty interesting fish, even if it is a cichlid. <laughs> and about this brackish water thing. Now, the orange chromide is endemic to freshwater and brackish streams, lagoons, and estuaries in southern India and Sri Lanka. And of course, as soon as we in the hobby hear the word brackish when discussing some of the natural habitats in which a fish is found, it forever becomes a brackish water fish, a la the bumblebee goby, etc. That's just how it goes in the aquarium hobby, right? Now, the reality is that the orange chromite is classified as urahaline, which is a term we've used before. It mostly inhabits brackish water estuaries, coastal lagoons, and the lower reaches of rivers near, you know, ocean environments. Urahaline. We've heard that term before. Yes, we have. It's defined as capable of tolerating a wide range of saltwater concentrations used to describe aquatic organisms. That single definition seems to give us as hobbyists the freedom to label the fish as a brackish water fish, despite the fact that it has the ability to live in both pure freshwater and brackish water conditions. So it helps to know exactly where your specimens come from, right? Now, I was lucky when I sourced my specimens recently as there was no ambiguity about what type of habitat they were originally from, or should I say where their parents came from. They were actually F1 from parents collected in a brackish water lagoon in the state of Karnataka in Western India. So I was pretty happy to be able to keep them in a brackish aquarium and have the confirmation that they were only a generation removed from a natural brackish water habitat. That was pretty cool. It's all well and good for me, but what if you're not so sure about where your chromites come from? And don't say the fish store. <laughs> well, as we've discussed just a minute ago, they are urahaline species and they can adapt to brackish water relatively easily. You just have to do it very gradually, like over a week or more. Just go slowly. Now, one thing I will tell you about these fishes is despite their you know, peaceful reputation and, you know, relatively small size, they can be little shits among themselves. These guys are pretty social, 
but they do have a social order, which is maintained when feeding and even when schooling. And yeah, they school. The alpha male generally gets to eat first, followed by the less dominant specimens. And of course, he leads the pack when they school in the tank, and they do, which is something that's pretty interesting. And yeah, the social order in a group of these guys is a big deal. The dominant fish will indeed pick on the weakest ones. In fact, I lost a few over the years due to a super aggressive dominant male essentially bullying and beating the shit out of the subordinates in my group before I could remove them. It sucks. It's hard. Now, I'll tell you that you should still keep them in a group. Not only do they seem to be happier that way, but they display the most interesting behaviors. Short of this harassment of the really weak ones, I'd love to tell you that with a large enough tank, this won't be a big issue, but I kept mine in a decent sized tank with lots of hiding places and it still was an issue. So approach with caution on that. Now, another thing about these fishes that you'll read is that they're relatively intolerant of poor water quality. Now, without sounding like an arrogant SOB, I'd have to tell you that I won't dispute this, but I can't confirm it because like most of you, I maintain high quality of water in all my tanks. It's just one of those things that I will typically accept as a given. So if the books say that it can't tolerate, you know, lousy water conditions, it probably can't. <laughs> now, like many cichlids, spawning is typically a given, given the passage of time, a group of fishes and under appropriate environmental conditions, i.e. water. <laughs> so in the wild, Orange chromides spawn in shallow water, typically in a little depression that they make in the substrate that's excavated by both the parents. Now, what this tells you, by the way, is that this fish is best kept in a tank with what? Sand, sediment, or other soft substrate materials if you intend to breed them. Hello. It's, again, time to play with dirt, mud, soil, decomposing leaves, branches, marginal prans, roots, all that kind of stuff which replicates the appearance and function of the natural habitats from which many of our fishes come from. And if you utilize them skillfully and thoughtfully, this can yield functionally aesthetic aquariums that are far different and more unique than anything previously attempted in the aquarium hobby. You know, cool brackish tanks. Now in nature, orange chromides spawn twice a year during the drier pre-monsoonal and the monsoonal seasons in which the salinity is a little bit higher, which is an interesting takeaway for us, isn't it? Now during these times, the turbidity of the water is lower and the parents can more easily construct their nests and sort of maintain visual contact with their fry after they hatch, which is interesting. Now, when orange chromide pairs spawn in the wild in isolation, they tend to construct nests in areas of dense vegetation or intense, extensive root systems, which provides a lot of camouflage, makes sense. Now, ecologists have also noted that during the month of July, that's their peak breeding season, during the month of July, chromides will construct their nests in areas that are rather sparsely filled with vegetation and roots and stuff like that. A sort of compromise between fry survival and foraging opportunities for the adults. Now, other non-spawning fishes will also make use of these areas, increasing the threat to broods of fry which emerge after hatching. So under these conditions, most orange chromides nest in colonies, which is believed to help decrease predation. Interesting, breeding colonies. We've seen that before, haven't we? Now, in a typical spawning event, about 200 eggs are laid, according to just about every source you'll find in the aquarium world. Of course, the largest batch I ever personally counted was like 100 or so eggs. Of course, I probably got a little tired of counting these little tiny eggs after a while, and the fish keep coming to the glass to, you know, scare me off. So it was a little annoying to them and annoying to me. Now, the eggs hatch after about five days, during which time the parents tend to them and fan to them like any other cichlid. Now, in typical cichlid fashion, one parent will always remain with the eggs when the others goes out and looks for food. The fry of orange chromites, this is interesting, they feed on a mucus secreted onto the skin of their parents, just like discus or waro do. This form of feeding is called contact feeding by a biologist, and it's perhaps very interesting to see. 
the pretty good sized fry are guarded by the parents and they almost reach sexual maturity. So they're almost the size of the parents. Like that's a really long time, a very unique behavior in cichlids. So you might even say they maintain a family unit. Um, like a lot of human family units, I know the kids overstay their welcome. So that's the way it goes, right? Now it is known, this is another interesting thing about that, um, the contact feeding, that immunoglobin concentrations are higher in the breeding fishes than they are in non-breeding ones. And they're highest in wild breeding in individuals. So biologists are curious to ascertain whether this immunoglobulin is passed on by contacting the fry in the same concentrations as it is found in the mucus of the fish. If it is, the big question is how does the increased amount of immunoglobin affect the growth and survival of these fry? It would be really neat to find out, wouldn't it? It's neat stuff. Oh, want a final bit of trivia on these fish? They're cleaners. Yeah, it's actually been documented. I found a research paper from 1972 by uh, researchers Richard Wyman and Jack Ward that young of uh, the orange chromide actively cleaned the related species, Etropolis suratensis, the green chromide, when they occur together. And uh, the green chromite are actually naturally inhibited from attacking small fishes, in case you're wondering. So that's an adaptation to, hey, these guys are cleaning me. I'm not going to eat them. So it's much like what you see in the ocean with wrasses or shrimp. These set up these cleaning territories that are established by the young chromides. And the shop hours sort of seem to follow a daily circadian rhythm. It's a unique, almost symbiotic kind of behavior. And, and what they do is they remove fungus from the fins and the tail of the green chromides and it appears to be an important adaptive function of this, uh, this sort of symbiotic relationship. So interestingly, it's also thought, and going back to that contact feeding, it's also thought that the contact feeding behavior in orange chromide fry during the parental care phase may have aided in the evolution of this cleaning relationship. They're getting something out of it. So this represents the first report of a cleaning symbiosis involving cichlids and really pretty fascinating stuff. So yeah, there is much more to this old hobby favorite than we might first imagine. So what would be some cool ways to keep this fish? Well, to begin with, you should definitely keep them in an aquarium with a fair amount of substrate and roots and perhaps a few aquatic plants. Now, if you're going to go brackish, it brings up the usual what plants can grow in brackish water discussions. And yeah, there are a few and you'll have to research that. <clears throat> Hint, uh, cryptochlorine ciliata. Just look for it. Big, big crypt, but it's cool. Or you can keep things simple and go for something like a tangled hardscape with wood and roots and mix it with sand and small quantities of rubble. This would be really interesting and a very good representation of the monsoonal conditions. Or you could simply do a proper brackish water aquarium with my fave all-time plant, the red mangrove. This would be a really rewarding you know, way to keep these fishes as I can attest. Again, new brackish water fishes are gonna become more readily available when the market demand is there. And in the meantime, we can and should focus on some of the cool fishes from these habitats, which are currently available to us. And let's face it, the brackish water habitats are as interesting, dynamic, and bountiful as any on the planet. And the orange chromite is just one of those examples of, of fish that's commonly available in the hobby, yet it's just uncommon enough to be interesting. And there's still a surprisingly large amount of misinformation out there but concerning fishes long thought to be brackish, when the reality is that they're often found predominantly in non-brackish habitats. Fortunately for us, the orange chromite is one of those that if you can do the research and find surprisingly large amounts of interesting scholarly information out there, you might be able to cut through the BS yourself and find out some really good stuff that you can apply to your aquarium keeping. You just have to be willing to look. So stay motivated, stay curious, stay excited, stay diligent, stay persistent, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenon Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.